Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. For months, the citizens of Hong Kong have been taking to the streets, protesting democratic deterioration and rights violations. There have been frequent clashes with police, outbreaks of violence and widespread disruption to the city. My guest today is Sophie McNeil, a Walkley Award-winning journalist for the ABC television program Four Corners, who has reported extensively on the Hong Kong democracy movement. Thank you for joining me, Sophie. Thanks for having me, Matt. We're not afraid because Hong Kong is our home. Fighting for freedom is what I am born for, and we won't give up until our last breath. radical sometimes. We can also be very, very peaceful as long as our demands are heard. But the one message is that none of us will quit the fight. Hong Kong is just similar as East Berlin in the last century under authoritarian rule. Now is the time for us to fight back. Let the world to know that we are the ones stand in the forefront to confront Beijing's suppression. So the story you produced for Four Corners, I watched it yesterday. It was really an interesting story. And I want to know about the process that you went through to create that story. So if you could start with telling me what attracted you to it, mm-hmm. what made you want to report on it, and how did you go about involving yourself in it? Well, I had been the ABC's Middle East correspondent and gotten quite used to reporting on street demonstrations and and the like. Mm. Um, But I have never, unfortunately, been able to report from China. I'd applied for a visa because we did a big investigation into Xinjiang actually last year and what was happening there. And we we weren't given the visas by the uh, embassy in Canberra, which isn't a big fan of Four Corners or the ABC. (laughs) I just had that experience in August of last year, spending months on this investigation documenting the horror that was happening inside Xinjiang and Mm. and the families torn apart, including Uyghurs here in Australia. And I was watching what was happening in Hong Kong and I desperately wanted to go there and just capture it because I felt that there was a, a lot of news reporting was happening, but people didn't really understand, it seemed, I think, here in Australia what was at stake for these people? What was really behind these protests? You know, these are the limitations of news reporting that it's kind of just more on the spectacle, you know, another night's protests in Hong Kong, you know, the police and tear gas and people throwing things. And it didn't feel like people were really aware of what was driving this movement. And I was, I mean, this is the thing in Hong Kong, there is so much brilliant local media, Mm. such brave reporters, you know, who, who are really targeted by the police. And this is the privilege of being an Australian reporter is that when you go there out on the streets, you can film things and be treated in a way that, you know, is much better than the local journalist because it's much harder for the police to be violent towards you and things like that. So it's, it's a privilege. And so we wanted to use this opportunity to go there and just capture what was unfolding because we felt it was so important that Australians realise that this bigger movement, you know, this wasn't just kind of street protests about one particular bill. You know, this this was a city rising up, people rising up and saying, no, this enough is enough. We don't want to live under this regime anymore. And it was quite extraordinary to be there 
in those weeks and just capture it. I mean, I feel like, <laughs> you know, all we did was be there and capture it. The, the bravery and the coverage is all the people of Hong Kong, particularly the young people. But, you know, even the old grandmas that you'd see out there yelling at the police, I mean, it, it was extraordinary to watch a society just rise up. Mm-hmm. And you said that you've been at, at protests before and you've, you've been involved in combat scenes, not in combat yourself, but, you know, in those areas in the Middle East, did you see a lot of similarities between that sort of thing? Because this seemed to be a pitched battle at times. Look, in many ways, what was extraordinary was how close you could get to the action in Hong Kong. But mm. like, I didn't get scared I was going to get shot like I would, you know, if I was in parts of the West Bank where every Friday when you'd go you know, into the occupied West Bank, you'd have to wear your flak jacket because Israeli uh, soldiers have been known to use live rounds at those demonstrations on Fridays and many journalists... Uh, local and foreigners have been hurt, mm. you know, some fatally. And so that that was something I was used to work in the Middle East. And so we brought our flak jackets to Hong Kong. Did you really? Yeah, but we didn't actually end up having to wear them because there were rubber bullets being used. Luckily, no live rounds while I was there. That, that changed after I left. And we've seen, you know, the horrific death of a few young people and some serious injuries as a result of the increasingly violent tactics of the Hong Kong police, you know, and there have been some really horrific injuries on all sides as Mm. protesters have also used violence at times after months and months of frustration. I mean, these didn't start as violent movements. This started as millions of people peacefully marching on the streets. We saw the peak of that violence when the university really shut down and everything really came to a peak a few months ago. But I think people need to always remember where this began. It was, you know, a peaceful movement of millions demanding their rights and they just weren't listened to and and that's how it began to spiral. So the protest leaders have just shouted out that the riot police are coming. So they've told all the crowds to get on the train and to leave this location and to move somewhere else. Did you have trouble getting access to people to talk to for this story and different perspectives or was it, as you put before, kind of the ease of being part of the Western media that opened the gates? Because I imagine the protesters would have been quite eager to get their word out there to the Western media, but at the same time cautious to protect themselves. And you didn't seem to have a lot of cooperation from the the Chinese or the Hong Kong authorities there when making this sort of story. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think the biggest difficulty really for us on the ground was safety in terms of who we were filming. You know, the last thing you want to do is go and report on people leave and then something happened to them as a Mm. result of of your coverage. I mean, that's an absolute nightmare for a journalist and it's never something that's happened to me, touch wood, because I always try and take precautions. So, you know, people didn't use their real name. One of the frontliners that we interviewed, you know, a frontliner is one of the younger Hong Kongers who goes and builds these barricades against the police. You know, when we interviewed Tom, I mean, you know, that wasn't his real name, but he also always wore his ski mask. Yeah, he wore a mask and a hood. yeah, 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 we had to meet him in our hotel. You know, it wasn't safe to go anywhere near where he lived. It was just extraordinary to see that despite the risks of arrest, because, you know, you are dealing with Beijing here, you're dealing with facial recognition technology, voice Mm. recognition technology. You know, these kids are so switched on. You know, they're not just like, yeah, I'm going to go on camera and tell everyone what I think. It's like, no, they, they really carefully think it through, think how can I get my message across, protect my identity, protect my safety, but also make sure the world knows, you know, what we're doing and what's at stake here. So, Yeah, that was one of the biggest difficulties of being on the ground. Mm. The police also, they didn't like the journalists being around. And whilst you were a little bit protected being a Western journalist, you still had to be really careful about being 
you know, hit on the head with something. You know, you always had to wear a helmet and, mm. you know, the tear gas was just a mask on and off and on and off and on and off. And it's, you know, it's a poor cameraman. Like it's, it was really hard trying to focus in the viewfinder when you've got wearing a, a tear gas helmet yeah. and, you know, trying to interview people or doing a PC camera. So, I mean, and it was so hot, you know, like the protests we were filming last summer, at the peak of it all, like it was just, you know, it was 35 degrees at 10 o'clock at night still. So... The other difficulty was it's so fluid, you know. The slogan of the movement is be water. Mm. And so these protesters will pop up and move and, you know, they're not going to risk putting out publicly what they're going to do if it means that the police will then know where they are. So you have to kind of be in tune with the Telegram group and you'll find out when the protesters find out, which is 10 minutes before it happens. So you're jumping on the on the right uh, I was, subway. I was wondering how you got there in time for some of them. So were you yeah. tied into that communication network, were you? We tried to be, but it was incredibly difficult because little groups of protesters would just, I mean, it was very organic. They would just organise, like perhaps kids from one particular neighbourhood would, would suddenly change and be like, okay, let's move to this place now because, you know, we've spotted the police there. And so a couple of instances we were lucky enough to follow people. Other times, like they would just pop up, like the opening scene of our story where we were just driving along and suddenly out of the subway came pouring more than 200 young protesters who started closing down this barricade. So it was just literally like slamming on the brakes, stopping our car, trying to park it somewhere, (laughs) jumping out and filming. So the whole feeling of that film that we made, Rebellion, was just to try and make it as observational as possible. Mm. You know, it wasn't about me, the reporter, being there. It was about these brave young people. And so I was just trying to stand back and let it unfold and, and just capture this amazing moment in history, really. Mm-hmm. Were you apprehensive about throwing yourself in, though? Because it seems like, you know, what happened at the airport, I was a bit worried about you. You were right in the thick of it for some of those shots. What happened at the airport was a really traumatic night. The protest movement was really grieving because one of their young protesters had been shot in the eye and there was great fears that she'd lose her eyesight and the anger was just kind of fever pitch. And they took over the airport, closed down the airport, which is incredible to close down, you know, Hong Kong airport, one of the world's busiest Mm, airports. And there was just this growing fear of what were the police going to do? You know, they they closed it down one day and then the next day you had this feeling that the police were going to move in and we didn't know when or where and there were these rumours sweeping around. It's just, you know, thousands and thousands of young people heeded this call to go to Hong Kong airport and if they couldn't get there on the train because they closed the train, then they walked. You know, it was just incredible. There just started to be a lot of tension about infiltrators and mainland security services coming and pretending to be protesters because that had happened a few nights earlier on the streets. You you saw undercover police pretending to be protesters. So there was a lot of suspicion that night at the airport. And when a young man was stopped by protesters, they discovered that he had mainland ID and everyone got very paranoid and thought they're trying this tactic again to Mm. use infiltrators to try and bring us down, cause a violent incident. Yeah, we were there right in the middle of it as this happened for a second time and it actually turned out to be a Global Times reporter. The young man that they stopped. The young man that they stopped. And, you know, they were beating him and it was this horrible moment where most of the crowd realised that this was a a bad moment to beat him and hurt him and that it was bad for their cause and it would put their cause back to react violently, you know, kind of stoop to the level of what they'd been protesting against. You know, they they had been protesting against police violence. Many of them thought that this was the wrong reaction. 
but there was also just so much anger in the crowd that night mm. um, so after so many months of not being listened to and, and having seen so many young people be injured by the police activities themselves. So it was this horrible kind of moment where you, you weren't sure what was going to happen. And at, at times you I was worried that they were, you know we were going to witness kind of a lynching right there in, in front of us. They've surrounded him and they're holding him and it's not clear what they're going to do with him next. I was trying to protect this man. Um, I was filming it all on my iPhone because I got separated from the ABC crew. And at the time, I didn't know he was a Global Times journalist. I don't think it would have mattered to me who he was, Mm. you know, whether he was a mainland undercover policeman. I couldn't stand back and watch as someone was being beaten like that. I didn't care what the circumstances was. I think just the desperation of people, their paranoia, their suspicion... It was, I think, perhaps a terrifying glimpse of where things could go. Yeah. You know, we were very lucky that night that no one was killed at the airport. And you saw in the days after the movement apologise. I mean, that's what's so incredible about this movement is that they make decisions by voting. They have um, an online yeah. kind of voting system. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the Cantonese version of Reddit that yeah. they all put up a post and they vote, you know, what should we do? And People put up a post saying, should we apologise for what happened at the airport that night? And you had mm. an overwhelming majority of protesters agree that they should. So they came out and held a press conference and apologised. So I think a lot of people in the movement, yeah, re- regretted where things had gone and they learned a lot that night. But even to this day, a lot of people believe that some of the violence was instigated by perhaps undercover policemen. I mean, this is the thing with Hong Kong. It's, it's sort of very hard to separate fact from fiction and it's very hard to confirm what has actually happened. But we did see that night some pretty horrific things, yeah. Hatred breeds hatred and this is what we see. We've seen violence escalated on both sides. What you've seen tonight at the airport is not a representation, a representation of the campaign itself. Um, we, do not, we do not condone violence. Uh, we want to fight against violence. Your story's been syndicated around the world. What's the reception to it been? It must have opened quite a lot of eyes to not just what's happening in Hong Kong, but also how a protest can evolve in the modern day against such tactics that the police are employing. It's incredible. I think the world has been watching this amazingly efficient protest movement in Hong Kong and learning some lessons. Mm. Um, Barcelona Public TV actually brought our Four Corners program and screened it. And this is where the Catalan independence movement is very strong in that part of of Spain. Mm. The people of Barcelona, you know, they want independence. So they broadcast this film and it was at, at the same time that some Catalan leaders had just been sentenced to long jail terms for holding their own kind of independence referendum. And they, they really drew inspiration from the people of Hong Kong and on the streets they were organising, you know, on Telegram and they were trying to pick up some of the tactics that the Hong Kongers had also picked up. Same in Lebanon, we've seen some incredible street protests recently and people have mentioned the organising tactics of the Hong Kongers because I think that's what you really realised when you were there on the ground. They're so advanced in so many things and to to use their advancements in kind of, you know, technology and organisation and things like that. The young people that we met there were so educated and to put all those skills into a you know a street demonstration movement mm. um, was just incredibly impressive. And how do you think the situation is going to evolve there? It's an interesting time right now because of the 
coronavirus. I mean, the yeah, street demonstrations yeah. have really quietened down. People have still been arrested, though. I think, if anything, the coronavirus situation has, if it could deepen even worse, it has, you know, their mistrust of the Hong Kong authorities and this real feeling that they're on their own. You know, they can't rely on their authorities to protect them. That's the feeling of Hong Kongers. When you speak to them, that's what they'll tell you and that what to believe the ability of their government to protect them or protect their best interests or just, you know, to cover Beijing's ass. I mean, this is the thing. People in Hong Kong are under no illusion of who's going to, you know, have their best interests at heart. And I think people are just so scared of, of being, you know, abandoned by their government. They've really learned, I think, in the last year that what's best for them is not what the administrators of Hong Kong have in mind. You know, they've really seen how they're working on behalf of Beijing. And so when you have something like the coronavirus and you know you can't trust what Beijing tells you, Mm. then it it reinforces how terrified people are, you know, of living under their control and their increasing influence. It's hard to see a a, a good resolution to these protests, though. I don't see compromise from the side of Beijing and I don't really see other countries saying, you know, we, we stand with Hong Kong and publicly support them against fear of any anger from China. Mm. It must be a very daunting situation to be a, a protester in Hong Kong these days, I imagine. I mean, that's what's amazing about it, you know. I mean, if you look at the history books, you'd look at people of Hong Kong and say, how can they win? Mm. You know, if there is ever a David Goliath battle, this is it. But they refuse to accept, you know, that history's already been written for them. And that's what's so inspiring. We have the same goal. We're united. And what we're facing is enormous because Chinese government have many resources to control us. But we're not afraid because Hong Kong is our home. This is what we only have. And I feel that in this situation, uh, fighting for freedom is what I am born for, and we won't give up until uh, our last breath. People are really willing to stand up and be on the right side of history, and yes, there's no indication at the moment that the rest of the world is going to stand with them in any way or support them. I mean, we're all so reliant on Beijing economically. Yeah, They're in it for the long game. And when you talk to these young people, it's not just something that I think is just going to pass like that was a crazy summer or something. No, I mean, mm. everyone's lost too much now. It's a small place and there has been so many traumatic incidents, one after the other after the other. Yeah, This isn't something they'll recover from quickly and just move on. You know, they're in it for the long haul. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Matt, for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. My guest today was Sophie McNeil, an ABC reporter. She's the author of a book called We Can't Say We Didn't Know, Dispatches from an Age of Impunity, and it's available from ABC Books. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia, and you can follow Sophie on Twitter. She is at Sophie McNeil. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>